In the justice system, crimes are investigated and tried by the government with two distinct sides. The prosecution, which represents the state, and the defense, who represents the accused. During his 60-year career, attorney Mike Fowler has been on the front lines of both sides. These are his stories. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayi Brief, and on this episode of Combat in the Courtroom, Mike Fowler shares the sordid saga of William Johnson. As chronicled in Mike's book, From the Bronx to the Bayou, this is a case about malice and matricide. And in the end, you may think justice was served, but not necessarily for the right reasons. It was a dark and stormy night on the streets of New Orleans in January of 1978, a couple of weeks before Mardi Gras. The Crumplers, Thomas and Nancy, are bundled up in their home on Washington Avenue when there's a knock at the door. When Thomas answers, a stranger, a 20-year-old man named Kevin Seward, pulls out a gun, shoots him twice in the head, and then barges into the house. Seward then chases Nancy throughout the house and then outside to the driveway before shooting her three times and leaving her for dead. The murder made headlines with neighbors and police believing at first that robbery must have been the motive. Three days later, though, a different story emerged when the NOPD arrested Seward and his boyfriend, 37-year-old William Johnson, whose mother, Nancy, was the victim. Johnson needs a public defender, and Orleans Parish Criminal District Court Judge Matt Braniff assigns Irv Diamond. Diamond, known for defending Clay Shaw, the only person ever prosecuted in connection with the assassination of President Kennedy, had another trial to prepare for at the same time. So he called his friend Mike Fowler. Irv came to me one day and said, look, I was appointed to represent a man named Johnson who was accused of having been the catalyst in the murder of his mother. Irv was involved in another case he really was not free to handle it. Could I take his place? You know, we knew that Braniff would have to agree for me to be substituted. I said to Irv categorically that I'll only take the case if the judge agrees to a lot enough funds for me to get a psychiatrist. Judge Braniff begrudgingly grants Mike's request for a psychiatrist. Mike's new client, William Johnson, had been charged with first-degree murder in the death of his mother, Nancy. The case involved Johnson, who had historically was only too happy that he could dance on her grave. I think that's the phrase that was used. So based on that, while Johnson was not present at the murder, was charged, as was Kevin Seward, in the death of Nancy Crumpler. Mike went to meet William in Orleans Parish Prison. Dislikable upon meeting him. He was bright. Uh, very full of himself in many ways, only too willing to say how happy he was that his mother had died, but that he had nothing to do with it. And so what I knew, there was no way I could put this guy on the stand, and there was nothing he really could do to assist me, aside from describing his relationship with Kevin Seward, which was a relationship that had only lasted maybe two to three weeks. Kevin Seward came to New Orleans from Lower Manhattan. He said to make quick money, bartending for a modeling portfolio. He described himself to police as a 
hustler, which is probably accurate. He was much younger than Johnson. Johnson, I think, at the time was in his upper 30s. Seawood was maybe barely 21, 22. Attractive physically. Johnson, from my estimate, was, was hungry for a friendship, most likely a sexual relationship as well. Seawood viewed Johnson most likely as a mark with whom he could strike up a friendship, most likely get him to pay for some things, and also a place for him to live. Johnson was living with his elderly grandmother, Kitty, on Phillips Street in New Uptown, New Orleans, the Garden District. Seward's trial was severed from Johnson's after he gave a confession to the murder, which included incriminating statements about Johnson. Complicating matters, William Johnson had provided a detailed confession himself that also turned out to be false, implicating another man who police quickly ruled out. Information would still be shared between the two cases, though. During the course of pretrial discovery, I learned that Seward's attorney, Bob Glass, had hired a psychologist named Charles Moans to interview Seward. And it was done for the purpose of using it in the defense of the Seward trial, of which I, we, I would have played no part. But I did get access this report that Charles Moans had written after examining and interviewing Seward. And it was astonishing. It turned out that Seward was a person who had this violent interior that needed to be triggered by some other person. So what we were able to develop as a result of that, hearing from Johnson how much he wanted his mother killed, triggered in Seward a decision to exercise these violent tendencies and kill Crumpler on behalf of his friend, even though the friend did not in any way suggest he do so. The trial began in October of 1978. Even though this was Mike's first death penalty case, he was keenly aware of the extra importance voir dire would hold. Judge Braniff, on the other hand, had little interest in Mike's questions for potential jurors. My examination during voir dire was extensive. It went on for something in the neighborhood of 22 hours. I was driving Matt Braniff crazy. And I remember there was a point during the voir dire, Matt Braniff was coming down on me and he was banging on the desk. He was so angry. And I basically said, Your Honor, I'm putting on the record that you're banging on the bench. And to which he responded, Well, I'm also holding you in contempt. It was not the only time he said he was holding me in contempt. He never did hold me in contempt. He never, there was never any proceeding. It just something that he mouthed with very little thought going into it. He was just expressing his anger. The trial proceeds with Judge Braniff and Mike in a contentious relationship. Mike sent his assistant counsel, Jim Cobb, in for the charging conference on what the judge would instruct the jury to deliberate. I had a very bright assistant working with me throughout the trial, Jim Cobb. Jim had handled some of the witnesses during the trial and had done very well. 
And when it came time for the charge conference, I was at a point where Braniff had little patience with me and I had little faith that we could win. I said to Jim, Jim, look, I don't want to start a blow up in there. Why don't you go into the judges chambers and handle the charge conference? And so he did that. I went outside, waited for him to come out. He came out after about a half hour and he said, let me tell you what went on. He said, I urged the judge to give the gross negligence charge. He refused to do so. And I said to him, you know, Your Honor, with all due respect, I think you're going to end up with a, a reversal on appeal for failure to give the charge. And you'll just be back here trying the case. And Jim described it in great detail how Matt Braniff was smoking a cigarette at the time, pointed the cigarette at Jim Cobb and said, at the end of this trial, you know what we're going to have? We're going to have fried fruit in the case. And he denied the motion to have the good negligence. The reference, obviously, to fried fruit was typical biased, bigoted view of Judge Braniff commenting on the gay disposition, the gay status of my client. With the jury only having the charge of murder, they returned a guilty verdict. Sentencing deliberations would begin immediately. This is back in the days when there was no time break between the verdict and the penalty phase. And the jury goes out and I'm satisfied they're going to bring in a death verdict. 45 minutes later, they come in with a life sentence. My guess is, this is just an assumption on my part, I think that what had happened in the trial of the case there were some people, or one or more, who were willing to give us the benefit of the doubt and were perhaps holding out for an acquittal. And the way they were brought around is they agreed to convict William of the murder or his participation in the murder, but on the condition that there would only be a life sentence. Mike appealed the decision to not offer the criminal negligence charge to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. We took the case up on appeal, and they upheld the failure to give the negligence charge. It made no sense to me as to why it was okay not to give the negligence charge. If you want to see it, you can read it in the book. William Johnson is, as far as I know, still in prison, serving out his sentence. Kevin Seawood was tried separately and also given a life sentence. There's more details in Mike's book, From the Bronx to the Bayou, available online at bronxtothebayou.com and on Amazon in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. If you're in the New Orleans area, it's available at Octavia Books and Blue Cypress Bookstore. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayou Brief, and on behalf of myself and our producer, Ben Collinsworth, thanks for listening.